Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tollett. Alexa, how excited are you today? I am 11 out of 10 excited, Yoel. Wow. Well, I'm 12 out of 10 excited to welcome <laughs> back a very special guest, none other than former co-host Mickey Inslicht. Mickey, so great to see you. How's it going? It's going well. I also am excited. I'd give it a six. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mickey's Mickey's not easy to impress. I remember that about him. It's one of his best attributes. Uh, no, it's, I'm, I'm really, really excited. It's been, has it been a year or nearly a year, right? I think it's been close to a year. I think it was like last summer, perhaps early fall that you recorded the last one with us. And the listener demand to have you back on has been Deafening. Deafening. Uh, an N of one, I believe. <laughs> All we get is complaints on social media. Where's Mickey? Why aren't there more Mickey episodes? When are you having Mickey back on? And so eventually we just caved to the pressure. That's right. Well, as someone who still receives all the emails to the podcast, uh, much to my delight, uh, I can say there's been roughly one person who's asked for me to back. Uh, and uh, you are kind enough, both of you, to allow me back despite the lack of enthusiasm from our audience. It's, you know, it's not about breadth. It's about intensity. Yeah, if we generalize up from that one person, then it's probably like hundreds of thousands, right? Hundreds of thousands. Yes, exactly. Multiply that across our enormous audience. <laughs> and we're talking about the population of Nebraska, give or take. Um so, uh, Alexa, I, I know our uh, listeners just want a little bit of a life update from you. And you were telling me uh, before we started recording that you do not have a kitchen right now. So you have to fill us in about what's going on there. Yeah. So I don't have a kitchen right now because because of this damage that was this water damage that um, we discovered before I went to Vermont. Um, so right now we are my inconveniently. Um, my parents are coming to visit uh, at the end of this week. Um, so it would be nice to be able to to feed them at least, you know, like some cereal or something like that. Um, so what we've done is basically tried to like set up a kitchen in another part of the house. Um, but we don't really have like an ideal space for that. So what, So basically we have like a laundry room that has a laundry sink where we've been washing dishes. And then we have like a pantry where all the food supplies are. And then we have set up like sort of a cook station outside with like a Coleman stove, um, which actually is like very functional. So we've had like delicious meals, thanks to Megan, since we've come back. Um, but right now, the weather forecast in Alabama is basically like 100 degrees every day for the next 10 days with no chance of rain. So it's like not exactly a fun time to be cooking outside. Oh, man. I was going to say naively, well, at least in Alabama, the weather will be nice to cook outside and <laughs> not the case, huh? No, it is not nice to cook outside. It's very miserable. Well, that's funny. You know, like I was back in Toronto recently um, and I was chatting with Mickey about how things have been for me over the past year. You know, I've been on sabbatical. A bunch of my stuff has been in storage and it's been sort of a lesson in what you can dispense with, right? And Mickey, I think, said, oh, I'd like to live out of a backpack. And here I feel like is another thing you can dispense with. Do you really need a kitchen or just do you just need a utility sink and a Coleman stove, you know? <laughs> I don't know if you could fit those in a backpack. <laughs> well, it depends on the backpack, I suppose. When uh, I was in Bali, we went to a little place and did have, had a very poorly equipped kitchen, at least by North American standards, and discovered we didn't really need much. Did open flame. We, we toasted bread on the open flame. Tricky a little bit, but uh, delicious. But it's true. You really need so little. Right. Just light a fire in a trash can and you're good to go. 
Although, if you don't have a fridge, then your beer will be warm, and that's not optimal. Yeah, so I'm I'm uh, making things seem more dire than they are. My fridge is still plugged in, so I do have cold beer today. Actually, this is this is like a miracle here. You do you actually have beer, both of you? It's oh my god, Yoel at least has a beer. Oh, and and Alexa too. Wow, this is. This must be because I'm here. Yeah, it's in your honor. And Mickey, as the honored guest, do you want to say first what you're drinking? Yes, I do. Made a special trip to a little beer store around the corner for me. And I got something that I haven't had since last summer, I believe. It really is a summer beer. It's from my friends at Collective Arts. Uh, They're out of Hamilton, Ontario. And it's something called Daily Forecast Mimosa. Uh, This might be actually cheating. I don't think this is a, a, a real beer. It's called a mimosa-style beer, and it's made with fresh orange juice. <laughs> so this is more like a Rattler, I'm suspecting. Wow. Okay, that is a very Mickey beer. Um, so I'll go next because my beer is also a little bit of a fake beer. Uh, this is from a Quebec brewery called L'Espace. How do you say public in French, Mickey? Public. Public. Yeah, there we go. L'Espace public. Uh, it's a beer de terrasse. I think I've had this on the show before. It's like a mango rice beer. So it is an extremely light, summery beer. Um, I could see Alexa is making a little bit of a contempt face. Well, um, this is going to be a rare instance where I have like the most legit beer, I think. Um, although it sounds like it's not legit. So it's called the Fifth Annual Juniper Rose um, but it's an American IPA, um, and it's brewed by Four Quarters Brewing LLC, um, which is located in Winooski, Vermont. Um, and it's named Juniper Rose after the nine-year-old brewing assistant um, who apparently helped to make it. Um, so, yeah. And is the art drawn by this nine-year-old as well? It looks like it's a child's art on the can. I was trying to see if there was like... Um, an artist credit on the can, but I couldn't find one. But I'm kind of assuming that that this was drawn by a nine-year-old. Yes, that is the most legit beer of the three. Oh, no, it's foaming all over. I lost a computer that way, Yoel. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> or was this a different time? <laughs> uh, I've lost more than one computer. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. How is yours, Mickey? It's really yummy. It tastes like a Sunday morning brunch. Is there any beer in that, or is like is it like a? Um, <laughs> it's just juice. <laughs> it's just a can of it's just a juice. can of juice. <laughs> it is labeled as beer. It's four point five percent. I think it's probably half orange juice, half lager, or something like that. But you know what? It's really hot here today as well, and I'll take it. Okay, Alexa, how's yours? Um, great. Yep, very good. Sweet. Um, so. Yeah, we have quite a bit that we want to cover, um, and I vote that we just dive right into the content. Now, Mickey, you, I view you as like sort of the originator of this kind of overall show idea. Um, so do you maybe want to set it up? So I think a lot of us uh, have been interested in social media, both personally uh, in terms of the way we spend our time, but also a lot of scholars in psychology, political science, computer science have been wondering how... Uh, it might affect people, how it affects society uh, and democracy. And the idea here was to center the episode today on a recent Atlantic article written by Jonathan Haidt, who is someone who I believe we've talked about quite a bit over the years. Uh, This is an article called uh, Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. 
And again, this is in the, the Atlantic, I believe, in the June issue. Or no, sorry, it was published April 11th, 2022. Um, and the argument he makes here is essentially that social media is blamed or can be blamed for much of the folly in American politics, especially political polarization. And he outlines an argument about why it might be the case, and I think we can, we can go over that uh, throughout the show. Uh, but he's you know, squarely pointing at social media as being a uh, malevolent force, warping you know, what could be uh, just regular politics and making them far more polarized than uh, they could be. And I guess why I was interested in this is that it seems like uh, uh, Haidt has had his sights set on social media for quite a while now. I think for the most part, he's been talking about it uh, with respect to how it might affect well-being, especially among adolescents. And this is, I think, a slightly different direction than what I'm used to him talking about is how it might affect uh, the politics. But he does smuggle in there uh, his <laughs> ideas about how social media affects well-being as well. And that's an area that I know a little bit. I'm, I'm actually studying it a little bit with one of my students, um, Victoria uh, Oldenburgo de Mayo, who's a relatively new grad student in my lab. And uh, because I know a little bit about it, I, I just felt the article... I don't, know if, I don't know if it missed its mark. I, I reread it again, and I reread it, and uh, I found it wasn't as bad as I remembered it to be. But I do, I, I still found that he is too focused on the ill effects of social media, and not perhaps considering that some of these forces were present already, and maybe social media is just reflecting the way we are, and not necessarily exacerbating some existing forces. So that was kind of how we started, and uh, and we'll go from there. Yeah. Uh, Alexa, what's your high-level take on the, on the article? My high-level take is that um, he makes some observations about what American society is like right now, some of which seem plausible and some of which seem sort of like important, um, but that most of the connection to social media as like a cause is pretty either not really uh, delineated or pretty speculative. Um, so, you know, he talks about things like polarization and, you know, the like loudness of extreme voices and uh, cancel culture and a number of other things. Um, but for me, it was like not always clear that um, social media use is um, is contributing to those things or exacerbating them. Um, and that's probably something that we'll talk about a bit la later in the chapter, which is like, how do you actually measure um, the impact of social media on, for instance, well-being. Uh, that's a really tricky question to answer. Um, and so I thought that, I mean, the article strikes me as a little bit overconfident in claiming to explain a very uh, wide and deep problem um, in a way that I thought was kind of superficial. Um, but there's lots to talk about, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I similarly, you know, I thought it was beautifully written. He's such a great writer. Um, and he is at least superficially a very kind of persuasive arguer, but then I felt like it lacked, uh, I don't know, it, it at a deeper level, like it didn't end up feeling that convincing because like Alexa, like you said, it may be that this social stuff like greater polarization, for example, or um, conflicts within progressive institutions, that this is stuff that would have happened anyway. And maybe it's more visible on social media, 
perhaps social media accelerated it, but like he really seems to make social media out to be the villain here that caused all this stuff. And that seems like a big claim. Right. So like one of the things that he starts by saying is an argument that I've heard a lot of time, and actually my students will say this um, in my classes, which is that social media is decreasing like our connection to other people or meaningful connections and it increases people's like performativity or something like that. So yeah, they'll say like uh, the fact that we have Instagram or Facebook um, means that uh, we're, we're spending more time sort of like performing and worrying about what other people think. There's lots of like discussion about what like buttons do and things like that. And that always struck me as something that, um, has always been a concern, right? So I guess when I was a kid, we didn't have social media, um, but I was still extremely worried about what other people thought and I was um, trying to be cool and I suspect those things have been happening um, forever. Maybe, I think you can make an argument that social media exacerbates that in some way, like maybe it's more public or something like that. Um, but yeah, I wasn't totally convinced and, and that that kind of, I feel like that's sort of like a theme in the, in the article. To me, steel man is arguing a little bit. I mean, I think you're right though. Those, those processes were there ready uh, among adolescents for sure. Wanting to look a certain way and appear a certain way and, and be perceived a certain way. Um, but with social media now, it's not just you performing or wanting to, you know, to please, you know, a handful of people. It could be trying to please hundreds, sometimes thousands, tens of thousands of people. And I think, just the sheer number of people who are looking at you can warp your incentives, can warp, um, uh, you know, how you act. So I, I do think there's some kernel of truth here. Uh, it's just not clear to me, you know, how causal this is. Uh, you know, that's my issue. And the other issue I have is he talks a great deal about Twitter, um, a great deal about Twitter, you know, as examples of all the bad behavior he's, he's, he's kind of pointing his finger at. But then he talks with about social media, capital S, capital M. And I, my sense is that he's looking at what's happening on Twitter, which in my opinion, it might be one of the worst, most toxic of the social media sites, and then assuming all social media sites are like this. Mm-hmm. It turns out, however, that among young people especially, Twitter is not a, not a popular platform. Um, they're, in, they're into Instagram or TikTok. They're not into Facebook either. Uh-huh. Um, and I think those places are pretty different. They're, they don't have the same kind of dynamics. They don't have the same content even. Uh-huh. So it, it's, he's extrapolating uh, about social media writ large uh, based on what he sees on Twitter. And that seems that seems like a mistake. Yeah, this reminds me of, I went to, this was several years ago now, I went to a talk by a philosopher um, about social media and it had sort of like a similar tone, like social media is sort of like um, ruining the youngsters. Uh and I had the same reaction of like, this guy is talking at this point. It was like, this guy was talking about Facebook and I was like, you, yeah, you don't know what young people are using social media for and you don't know how people are using it. I don't know how much research Height did for, for this like paper in terms of, yeah, what the frequency of use of different platforms is and how much he uses those different platforms. But yeah, I think something like TikTok is a totally different medium than something like Twitter. We recently surveyed our undergrads at uh, U of T Scarborough, uh, just seeing what networks people, or what, sorry, uh, what platforms people were using. And Twitter barely registered. Facebook barely registered as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all these other sites, uh, which actually kind of surprised me because 
at least in my world, Twitter Twitter is the main thing. Mm-hmm. And despite it not being the, perhaps the most popular, it seem, it does seem to be the home of uh, elites in in journalism and academia, um, in entertainment, uh, politics. Um, but again, I still think it's a mistake to, to extrapolate from that to, to, to the general thing. Yeah. So, you know, what you said a minute ago, Mickey, is you might be performing in front of thousands of people. I think for most people, that's not true, right? Like most of us don't have that kind of uh, an audience on social media. And for most of us, it's like, well, maybe, you know, a hundred of our friends follow us on Instagram. Um, and if we're on Twitter, maybe we have 50 Twitter followers, right? So it seems like you really have to distinguish between you know, what is social media, and in that case, it really would be Twitter, doing to people with big audiences who are already sort of famous, right? Like, you know, I'm famous in quotes, they might be journalists or academics or whatever, um, but they're like well-known enough to have a bigger audience versus social media for normal people, where you might say like, oh, Instagram is like bad for teenage girls, but that's a really different... If if they're both bad, they're bad for really different reasons, right? Putting them in, under the same heading seems weird, yeah, I mean, they're totally different media. I mean, it seems like Instagram was image based, and I think the concerns there, at least for adolescent girls, is that they're you know the same kind of uh, body issues that have been around and people have been worried about since as long as I've been an adult uh, are, are there on Instagram. Um, and these are perhaps a sensitive period for, for adolescents, especially girls, and perhaps there is some connection. Uh, between using Instagram at a at a young age for girls and susceptibility to poor well being, perhaps it seems like the direction of causality goes both ways. Um, but yeah, it, it, I think we probably need to get more granular when we talk about social media. Um, but you know, to get back to Height's article, he really wants to talk about the, the the political dynamics of it, and I think there there's it really is Twitter, uh, maybe Facebook a little bit, although it's you know, I know it's the biggest platform. But it's not reused a lot by young people. Yeah. So what did you guys make of his argument that um, I guess maybe one area where he sort of does articulate his argument is that uh, social media, um, I guess, amplifies or encourages the voices of more extreme views um, more so than moderates. And so we get like a distorted sense of polarization, which I guess then could in turn contribute to polarization as a result. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a hundred percent true on Twitter, where you know the people who are amplified are the people who yell in an angry way or else make fun of the other side. At least if you're like, you know, broadly looking at you know politics related accounts, there's there is a lot of that, and I, I think Twitter's also can be really useful for specific sub communities where you get rewarded for other things. But if you're like, in general, what's the effect that it's had on political dialogue? I don't think any question that it doesn't have a good one. I mean, I, I question just the extent to which that's responsible for kind of the larger problems in the U.S. and elsewhere politically. Um, that's where I kind of get off the train. But if you're like, does political discussion on Twitter, is that a good thing? I, I think for the most part, no. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I agree with that point that the uh, the loudest, most extreme voices, some of whom might be trolls, maybe many of them, um, they get a disproportionate amount of attention. And there is that data, which you well, I know you've, you've thought about quite a bit, about uh, how certain emotions propagate and go viral, more likely to go viral on, on a place like Twitter. So outrage seems to be uh, particularly um, likely to, to lead to a viral tweet. 
Um, and that doesn't seem like great for any kind of discourse, uh, especially political discourse. Mm-hmm. But you, you, I know you've studied this, so this is something that is that is that something you found as well? Yeah, yeah. So it's particularly like negative moral emotion, so like morally condemning bad things that um, that in our data was associated with being retweeted more. And this was specifically for political accounts, so members of U.S. Congress. Um, and that makes sense, right? If you think about what's attention-grabbing, um, that's what's attention-grabbing. And kind of anodyne announcements about like good things that are happening, not particularly attention-grabbing. So people want to retweet the moral outrage stuff. I mean, that isn't, you know, it's not bad in all cases. Um, Some things you genuinely should be outraged about, but it does seem to encourage uh, those political accounts to then amp up the outrage because they realize that that's what gets exposure. Yeah, I think this was something that like, um, yeah, Facebook was criticized for as well, right? Because when those um, Facebook's internal research documents got leaked, like, Maybe that was like six months ago now or maybe a little bit longer. Um, yeah, I remember one of the things that I heard was that Facebook was trying to encourage like comments basically. And basically what ended up happening was that they like really amplified. Yeah, like outrage comments or like moral indignation and things like that. And um, yeah, that all got sort of um, amplified by their like their attempts to increase user engagement essentially yeah so if you're like hey we just want to maximize engagement and you in in sort of a like i don't know just very empirical way say what's associated with people engaging more it's like oh they put the angry face emoji Mm -hmm. and then if you like don't think about it that hard you're like all right well let's amplify those posts that's what people are engaging with right um that doesn't build a great facebook experience kind of like in a, in a larger sense, right? You go on there and you're barraged by stuff that made people mad, but that is what gets people to look and click and all of that stuff. So, but is this, this a, just inherent to the design, right? So, but is this a different in like a qualitative difference from what existed before? I mean, negative headlines were, were always, you know, more popular than the, the good news stories. You would never see a good news story, maybe at the very end in local news, some, some local little thing about a hundred year old's birthday or something, but that, you know, that dynamic has always existed. Uh, we seem to be more sensitive uh, and pick up on the negative negative news and we th- remember it more for all different kinds of reasons. So is it just a different in not kind, but in degree? So now more people are, be- are kind of engaging personally in this amplification of outrage? Yeah, and I would argue even more specific than like we attend to negative information is like we love when people on our side are making fun of people on the other side like i feel like that's kind of the basis of the the bad kind of gossip i want to leave some room for like a good kind of gossip um but yeah i mean one thing that i was going to ask you well since you've been you've thought about this maybe more is do you have a sense of the motivation that drives people to be like pumped to engage with other people's outrage like people enjoy feeling outrage, I guess. Yep, yep, yep. Particularly, I think um, when they see intergroup conflict, mm-hmm. they enjoy dunking on the other side. Particularly, just as you said, and then then they also enjoy reading about terrible things that the other side has done. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think Mickey, to your point, that's true. That's you know, definitely predates social media. I guess Height would say 
social media just enables us to do that stuff way more effectively. And to the extent that you think that that stuff is bad, you know, greasing the wheels is not a great idea. I guess I wonder, like, is it the case that it's necessarily bad that we have a place where, like, people who are, among other things like politics enthusiasts, can go yell at each other and kind of be shitty to each other? Like, is a problem maybe that we're just, like, paying too much attention? Like, what if we just said, this is the world where you guys get to do that and we're going to go elsewhere? As you guys have done, right? You guys have both kind of quit. Or, Alexa, you never started. Yeah, right. I mean, I guess it becomes dangerous if people are paying too close attention to the conversation and those people have power, right? So if politicians themselves are listening to this conversation and that that influences how, you know, they vote or draw any kind of policy, or if administrators paid too close attention to these little fights. Um, if we could all just treat it as, this is somewhat entertaining, uh, I think it would be less worrisome. But the fact that you know people in power do seem to be paying attention, I think that's where it becomes problematic. Yeah, and it strikes me also that that might go in the other direction too. So... This has been my experience, and I'm not sure if this is just because of like a personal trajectory, um, but certainly like within the last few years, um, I feel like my insight into like the the things that politicians say and think has become like that that information has become like a lot more transparent. And I think part of that is that politicians often have social media accounts and Twitter accounts and things like that. Um, and yeah, sometimes it's like very uh disheartening right it's like i thought that politicians were professionals and actually you know like their tweets suggest otherwise or something like that um which maybe speaks to something else that height talks about in the article which is i think he makes the argument that social media is like eroding our trust in institutions um important institutions like um like perhaps government, um, perhaps also science, but also like things like media. Um, and there I wasn't totally sure where, like if I fully saw the connection between social media and that, that sort of mounting distrust. But I, I do think that distrust is, um, is happening. Um, what did you guys think about that, that part of the article? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, it seems, I mean, for sure, I agree f- for sure that we, we need trust for a functioning society. And it does seem like we are trusting our institutions less and less. But again, is that Fox News? Is that Rush Limbaugh's fault? Or is it social media? It just seems like social media is a mirror to what we're already doing. And maybe it, maybe the real sin is that it kind of, it's a turbo boost. Uh, it's, it's a funhouse mirror. Right, it kind of reflects who we are and just kind of maximizes it, and that's its destructiveness. But you know, Fox News long predated uh, social media, and it seemed like there's all kind of you know uh, untruths being spread by that uh, you know by that news channel. Same thing with with with, with Rush Limbaugh and people of his ilk. Yeah, I had the same thought. So this idea that um, we now don't as like a as a population. Um, we don't have a shared reality or something like that. Um, Height seems to attribute that to social media and I had the same reaction as you, Mickey, that 
Um, I do think about things like major news outlets before I think about social media. I mean, right now there's the congressional hearings about January 6th and um, Fox is the, I think, only major news network that's like not just airing those live. Um, and instead they're airing like counter programming and things like that. Um, and I've even heard that, that they're like reducing the number of commercials so that people are less likely to change the channel. Um, so to me that the role of like, uh, like eroding, like a shared reality, um, it's easier for me to think of major news networks, um, than it is to think of, uh, social media. Um, but my perhaps my least favorite part of the article was um, when Height talks about how this like eroding of trust means we no longer um, agree on the narratives that we're told by these institutions. And he starts talking about the narratives that were told by educational institutions. Um, and I think he makes the argument that it's really important for us to trust um trust our educational institutions to give us a shared narrative of who we are as people. And that just struck me as like a really like, we need to buy the traditional account of American history and we can't ever revise that because then, you know, there will be disagreements about what the history is. And that struck home for me in particular. Um, I don't think that the university of Alabama is unique in this regard. Um, but yeah, I don't trust the University of Alabama to shape our understanding of American history. Um, and we have like one faculty member in particular who does these um, these hollowed ground tours where basically she provides, um, her name is Hillary Green, and she provides uh, like an alternate account to the official UA tour, which doesn't address any of UA's racist history. Um, it doesn't like talk about the fact that we have um, monuments on campus that are like devoted to the United Daughters of the Confederacy who like famously um, perpetuated this um, myth that the Civil War um, was about states' rights and not about um, slavery and things like that. So anyways, sorry, I went on a bit of a rant there. Um, but I didn't like Hyde's suggestion that we should like all buy this, um, this sort of uh, traditional narrative of American history. I see. You're throwing down the gauntlet uh, <laughs> to, to the UA administration. I think this is pretty rich as a foreigner who came to the US, took a job that could have gone to an American, and now you're now you feel entitled. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I did that too. So I guess it's, it evens out, really, you know? Yeah, exactly. If they want to yeah. kick me out, then they have to take you back. Right, exactly right. We could just swap jobs. <laughs> Mickey, what do you think? But no, I want to, I want to get what, what you're saying, Alexa, because I totally agree with you. I think there needs to be a multiplicity of stories allowed and, and like we need to be exploring, you know, you know, what our history is and what the truth is. But I also agree with Height that having a shared narrative uh, helps in building society and, 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 and allowing for trust. So is there some middle ground? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, it also is disturbing to me that, um, that I feel like there are some domains in which there's no sort of like ground zero for truth or even for sort of like seeking out truth. Um, so like, for example, with the, like, uh, the, the insurrection and the congressional hearings about it, I do think that there are, so first, of course, I think there are people who are like constructing that narrative in self-serving ways that they know are 
that are disingenuous. But I also think that there are people who are dealing with a totally, like totally unoverlapping sets of facts. Um, And so therefore, like the idea that those people could come to like a mutual understanding or compromise seems impossible. Like if you're just like dealing with um, two totally separate realities. So the idea of having like a shared reality or a shared ground truth does seem really important to uh, sort of like making decisions as a, as a nation or maybe like the fun- functioning of a democracy or something like that. Um, but then, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the the like tempting answer is like, okay, it would be nice to have when when talking specifically about like a history or something like that, um, the tempting answer would be, um, it would be nice to have a shared one as long as it's the right one. Um, but I don't know what that means really. Like when I think about teaching just a history of psychology class, there's so much that you leave out, right? And so in that selection, there's always going to be like the construction of some kind of narrative uh, that's going to be different depending on the teacher. So um, I don't know. I guess I'm saying that it does feel like there there needs to be some shared basis, but uh, I don't like the idea of arriving at that shared basis by discouraging people like questioning the dominant narrative or something. I agree with that. I still think there is a possible middle ground. I mean, it would be it might be difficult to get there. Uh, a lot of negotiation of look, you know, competing narratives. I mean, I I do think that happens outside of these you know, super honestly unrepresentative circles like academia, right? So I think most Americans do think that uh, America has problems, but that things have steadily been getting better and that it's the best country in the world to live in. And to the extent that like, you know, progressives or democratic elites start advocating for a different view, they're they're just probably going to lose elections, right? And so it'll be self-correcting. Um, and so I don't see a problem with some people saying, you know, America is and always has been uh, a white supremacist terrorist state, and it is literally the worst place in the world to live. It's, I mean, that to, to me is ridiculous, but it's like, yeah, people have the right to say that, and it's not going to be a popular view, and that's fine. I don't know if we're, you know, fundamentally um, threatened by some people being quite negative about the US, even if those people are in certain circles influential. What you said reminded me, uh, wasn't there this survey a number of years ago suggesting that the US was one of the worst places in the world to be a woman? Um, like far less gender parity than like some of these other countries who are like, clearly they're, they're ahead. Um, I guess just based on certain narratives. <laughs> I'm not sure how that was determined, but it was a list like that. Yeah, I I must have missed that one in particular, but I'm sure Alexa could speak to this as a U.S. loving woman. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I I guess no, I can't really speak to that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, off to Afghanistan or whatever, which I'm sure will be an upgrade. Well, I have two countries to compare: Canada and the U.S. And I think Canada is better to women, and that's about all I can say. I was just talking to a friend of mine about um, the amount of parental leave that um, she and her husband have had for their two kids. And so for each of her kids, she took 12 months, and her husband took six. And I was like, whoa, 
So yeah, Yoel, if you want to trade back. <laughs> it's always, always with a pro-Canadian propaganda. People don't get shot here. If they do, they don't have to pay their own ER bill. I just like our listeners must be so sick of this. Ah, the truth hurts, Yoel. You're outnumbered this time. Yeah, no, it's that's it's fair. It's fair. It's accurate. I mean, so I have seen some data showing just declining trust in general on institutions, and that's particularly, I think, the case on the right. Um, and they're like, I think that's something that maybe we ought not to trivialize and that I ought not to be so dismissive of because um, I think that can be quite toxic. I don't know if social media per se really is the driving force there. Um I think it it may be that people on the right just in general feel like the country is culturally hostile to them and particularly that these important cultural institutions have more and more of a left-wing uh skew which is just a function of education polarization right so people more educated people get more and more left these institutions tend to be staffed and you know managed by more educated people and so they kind of mechanically just become more left-leaning and then if you're more conservative you maybe for good reason think that these institutions are hostile to you you trust them less that does seem like a kind of a bad state of affairs but i don't know that i would point this finger at social media for it i agree with everything you said including that this is a bad thing and also doubting whether social media is the cause uh, i read actually a super interesting article also in the atlantic uh, a week or two ago which is called how politics poisoned the evangelical church uh, by tim alberta and this author pointed to the church or actually people in the church wanting their um their pastors or priests or whatever to to be more political and and, and usually it's to be more right leaning, uh, sometimes to be more left leaning, um, but you know this article would suggest that the church itself is is part of the reason that people are or at least the evangelical church is getting is part of the reason that people are getting more polarized. Now maybe this is happening because social media is, is, is exists and people are on it and they want their pastors to to reflect more of what they're reading, but I doubt it. Um, I, su- I suspect it's more to do with mainstream media, like Fox News and, and what have you, and then wanting their pastors to be more political. Uh, and then they enter these environments, they hear this stuff that reaffirms their views, they go out to the world, and kind of the cycle continues. But again, it's not, not social media's fault. This is what people want or what they're exposed to in other ways. Yeah, it's funny. It's sort of the mirror image of, on the left, the way that the ACLU used to be free speech absolutists. And now they are kind of all-purpose progressive advocacy group uh, to the point of backing off on the free speech stuff in some circumstances, right? So it's, it's you know, your constituency wants you to be doing this other thing that isn't necessarily your core mission, but that they really care about. And because your constituency kind of generally feels the same way about this stuff, so there's a kind of a uniformity of opinion, it's very hard to say no. So like, it does seem to me like in a lot of the cases that we see where there is this just like institutions making what from the outside seem to be like bad decisions that really I suspect a lot of the pressure comes from within. So from members, from employees and so on, and not so much from outside. And so I question whether that's social media rather than just 
a like greater uniformity of opinion among people who happen to like work at a specific organization and then maybe that they're able to talk to each other more easily using like internal tools like slack for example where there's these company-wide chats and everybody can talk to each other um not really social media's fault although i guess more broadly you could say well tech did it or something so i actually have a study uh that be- that kind of addresses some of the issues that uh Height talks about. So again, this is a study led by my student uh, Victoria Aldenburga de Mayo, where we it's an experience sampling study where we, you know, we arm people with uh, with an app where they that beep them I think five times a day for the course of a week, and we got uh, regular Twitter users for this from our that we got from a representative sample of Americans, and what we did in fact find that uh, w- within person effect such that. When people did check social media, or Twitter specifically, they did express more affective polarization. So any instance they checked relative to when they didn't check, they felt more antipathy to the the out political group. Um, so there is some evidence uh, that this is happening. Again, it's, it's correlational. It could be when you, when you have a particular moment of feeling polarized, you might log in to kind of feed your priors. Um, or it could be the other way around. Um, but it is somewhat consistent. Uh, and the effect size is, it's not necessarily small. Uh, I mean, it's a meaningful effect size, uh, is what I'm trying to say. Again, But again, only within person, not between person. Do you think you'd see the same thing if it was like uh, listening to the news or like picking up a newspaper or something? Possible. I have no idea. Um, what I do know, at least preliminary data, uh, so we'll see what happens uh, as, as we continue collecting, is we, did, we ran the same study this time on uh, U of T undergrads, and this time we didn't limit it to Twitter. We, we, we said whatever, whatever social media sites you happen to check, and that's how we know that people don't use Twitter very much. They use Instagram or TikTok or what have you. Mm-hmm. Actually, a lot of, uh, we have a lot of uh, Chinese students, and they use uh, Weibo and another big uh, Chinese platform. Um, anyways, there we uh, we didn't find this effect at all, mm. um, and and if and, and actually we found it, there was a, it was associated with a slight bump in well being, um, which again is kind of what we not what you'd expect. So I have no idea about newspapers, but it's possible. Uh, you you read something that's you know about you know about an issue you care about. Yeah, maybe you're more polarized. Yeah. Um, do you guys know what your uh, screen time is in a given day? Like, um, so I have an iPhone and so my iPhone will tell me at the end of each week, um, how much time I spend, I guess, using the screen of my phone, um, on a given day on average. I get those reports and I try to ignore them because I don't like what they're telling me. (laughs) (laughs) It's hours. It's definitely hours. So, so mine is usually between one and two hours. Um, and I asked one of the undergraduate RAs in my lab and hers was nine hours. And I was like, wow, what? Um, and so like, okay, caveats, like I, I, I think that probably, um, undergrad students are doing like a ton of stuff on their phone that I do on my computer. Um, so my screen time, like if you include my laptop screen is much higher, of course, than, you know, like between one and two hours. Um, but I asked her like, what do you do on your phone? (laughs) 
And she said, like, I just like watch TikTok. And I don't know how representative she was, but I was like, wow, that is definitely a different reality than my reality. Yes, there's been another study, uh, also on U of T undergrads. We're trying to look at objective screen time and well-being and what have you. And what, uh, 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 we actually find no connection between objective screen time and any outcome variable, which is interesting, or any you know predictor variable. No, like personality didn't make a difference. Uh, we measured you know cognitive ability to make a difference, but we were able to see the number of hours people were on, not just all their apps, but social media specifically and all the various social media sites. And it's, it's, you know, breathtaking how long people are on. I forget the the number now, but I think it's like 20 plus hours a week um, that people are on social media on average in this one sample. It might be, it might've been higher. So don't call me on that number, Um, but it's intense. Do you think it's weird that, uh, people seem to care so little about TikTok. I mean, this is a Chinese company, and we don't know that the Chinese government tells them what to do. But if they did tell them what to do, we definitely wouldn't know about it. So I just imagine, you know, them tweaking the algorithm to surface stuff that they think hurts us and helps them. Like, they're kind of a hostile power. They're not nice guys. There are geopolitical adversaries. And nobody gives a shit that American, you know, young adults spend like all day looking at this the stuff it seems crazy. Uh, I think that's just sinophobia, UL. <laughs> it's obviously a racism. <laughs> I don't know, Alexa. What do you think? Oh uh, yeah, totally. Obviously a racism. <laughs> Thank you. Sounds Thank like you. Sounds like you could be writing Donald Trump's tweets right now. Um, you know, he's he's still kicked off, but it, I'm I'm hoping for that job. I'm angling for that <laughs> job. You know, once he comes back on. I'm out of beer, guys. I, I think I need another one. I too am out of beer. Why don't we take a break and then we can come back and talk about whether social media is bad for you Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are on Twitter, the terror, the world's worst social <laughs> network, at Four Beers Pod. You can add mention us. You can DM us. You'd rather email us, fourbeerspod at gmail.com is our show's email address. That goes to all three of us. Uh, finally, our website, fourbeers.com, has all of our episodes. You can drop us a line there as well. If you like, uh, if you're enjoying the show, please just take a second to rate and review us on the podcast platform of your choice. Just helps other people find us. Um, Alexa, do you want to promote your appearance on your grad students podcast? Um, Yeah, sure. Well, really what I should do is promote my grad students uh, podcast, which is 
uh, called Corrupting the Youth. Um, and so it's uh, it's created by my students, Jacob Miranda and Cassie Witt. Um, and they talk about basically teaching psychology. Um, and one time they had me on as a guest. Um, but in general, it's very, very worth listening to. <laughs> right. So you're suggesting the listeners should just go ahead and skip that episode and maybe check out some of the other ones. Yeah. Anything but that episode is worth your time. That seems wise. And I give them props for the name of the show, which I think is excellent. Yeah, me too. Okay. So part of the point of the break was more beer. What are you guys drinking? So I've got a proper beer this time. This is one that is, I think, somewhat well-known in Toronto. It's called Bluer Light. Uh, it's by Burdock Brewery uh, around the corner from my house. And I've actually never tried it. Uh, obviously, it's a play on Bud Light, but apparently, it's unlike Bud Light, it's quite good. I have a, a beer from the brewery uh, Vox Populi. This is another uh, Quebec brewery. This is a hazel nut brown ale. I know nothing about this, it's, but it's got a little nut on it. Isn't that cute? <laughs> Very cute. <laughs> Thank you. All right. All right. And uh, yeah, I'm going to crack it open. I'm very curious about this beer. Very light. Hmm. Well, as the name implies, I guess. Yes. Um, this has really like a kind of a coffee taste to it that I quite enjoy. Awesome. Mickey, is your beer more or less light than your half juice, half beer that you drank in first? Oh, actually, it is lighter. <laughs> it's 3.1%. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Wait, what's the what's the ABV on yours, Alexa? Um, let's see, 7.3. Do I wow. beat Mickey even though I'm only drinking one? It's big. Yeah, you do. Yeah. You do. You win. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it'd be very close. Yeah, for sure. I had a big one, but it was, it was weak. So, uh, I want, before we, you know, kind of get back in there, I wonder if we're going to take a quick kind of pause and, and ask you two about your own experiences with social media. Uh, which I know, Alex, you're not on Twitter, but you're on other platforms. Mm -hmm. So what is your experience like? And do you see anything what uh, Hyde talks about, you know, there in your own experience? I guess like, I'm inclined to think that maybe my social media experience is um, not very representative. The only social media I think that I spend any time on is Instagram. Um, and I also, so basically I use Instagram to follow um, people who I know um, and then like there are some news um, Instagram accounts that I follow. Um, so I actually like sort of get my news via social media, but like in a boring way where I see an Instagram post and it leads me to an article that like, well, I'll like, you know, skim or read or something like that. Um, and I don't use, I have a Facebook account, but I don't use it. Um, I have a Twitter account, but I don't use it. Um, and that's, I think it. Um, I don't know if Snapchat counts as social media, but I used that for a little while and I found Snapchat super fun. Um, but that's like, I wasn't really using the, the stories function, which is the like more social function. I was more just like, um, communicating with friends via goofy images. Um, so yeah, I, maybe I'm not very engaged <laughs> with social media. Um, but mostly like my experience that I do have with social media is, pretty positive so i don't have this feeling that that some people i know have where they're like oh sometimes i would i feel like i should just delete all my social media accounts and like um you know disengage with that um i i guess i'm not really that engaged in the first place and you well 
Uh, well, I do use Instagram to um, look at my friends' pictures. Um, so I, I'd say like that's my main social media for keeping up with what friends are doing. Um, and then I do look at Twitter quite a bit to like keep up on news and discussion and stuff like that. I don't post that much. Like I post occasionally. Um, and you know, I definitely see some of this stuff on Twitter that Hyde is talking about. I think there's a lot of people being stupid on Twitter. Um, I have personally gotten yelled at on Twitter once or twice, uh, which is, <laughs> which is fine. Like it's just, I, you know, it, do, it doesn't bother me as much as it bothers some people, but I also haven't like ever really gotten yelled at. I've only in a very minor way gotten yelled at. So yeah, I mean, I, I guess I agree with Hyde about kind of the characterization of the level of Twitter discourse, but I also kind of think if you look at it as entertainment, it's fine. Um, I noticed, Mickey, that you have really scaled back your Twitter just, you know, to the point where I don't really see you post at all anymore. Yeah, I've, I certainly haven't quit. I still check. I'm not every day, but once every few days. And... It's kind of funny because we've been kind of pushing back against uh, Heights' uh, claims, but personally, it resonates with me. I, I find Twitter to be a really toxic place, um, and I'm actually now fearful even to post. Like even if I, unless I post something completely benign, I worry. And unlike you, Uel, I, I do. Uh, it does hurt me when I get pushed back. Uh, it makes me anxious, and I'd rather not, you know, enter the arena. Um, and certainly I've seen the dynamics that, uh, that he talks about. But it's interesting because despite my personal experience, I, you know, that's my experience. And I, I don't know if it generalizes to other people. I think there's lots of good to social media and Twitter that he completely ignores. Um, not that I experienced them, but uh, I used to love it. I used to, lo- I used to find it connected me with people. Uh, I, I had collaborators, you know, that I met on Twitter that I still kind of cherish and we still work together. So yeah, there are lots of positives, but for me also lots of negatives. And what I've done in terms of my own behavior is I just stopped following people who I found annoying, which ended up being a lot of people. <laughs> and now my Twitter feed is, is incredibly boring. Uh, so I go on like almost like uh, as an addict just to see what's there, but it's like, Oh, a job announcement paper. Uh, you just ho hum, <laughs> right? <laughs> I have a question for you, Mickey. Um, which is so, uh, Height ends the paper by giving some like recommendations for what we can do to, I guess, like combat um, social media's negative effects. Uh, and his third recommendation, I believe, is like prepare the next generation. And so he talks about keeping children off of social media for longer. Um, and also he talks about the value of free play. Um, so a quote from the paper is unsupervised free play is nature's way of teaching young mammals, the skills they'll need as adults, which for humans include the ability to cooperate, make and enforce rules, compromise, adjudicate conflicts and accept defeat. Um, and so I was wondering, like as a parent, um, have you, have you like adopted these kinds of practices? Like, have you considered, you know, shielding your kids from social media or like trying to make sure that they have like independent playtime and things like that? Uh, that's a great question. I think there's a couple of things in there. So the, 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 the playtime stuff, 
I'm all on board with. Uh, and, you know, I do find modern parenting is limits uh, children uh, too much. Uh, I think we're too scared uh, of them getting hurt or who knows what, you know, ill could, could fall them. Um, so I'm a big believer in giving them freedom, but that's a separate issue from social media. Now, I think I'm a, comp- I'm, I think I'm a real hypocrite here because we're going to talk a little bit about the, you know, well-being effects or supposed well-being effects uh, of social media, um, which we'll see. I mean, at least personally, I doubt, but I still do worry about it. I've seen the research and I buy the research that the effects are small, perhaps negligible, um, but nonetheless, it feels real to me. So yeah, I do want to shield my kids, but at the same time, like for my, my son is 13 now. We, he, he got a phone at the, the beginning of the year. And it would be cruel to deny him uh, to get on social media because that's where his friends are. And it would, it would be like a form of ostracism not to allow him to be on these uh, platforms. So, and despite me, you know, not wanting him to be on these platforms, he's already on. Like, so he's really into YouTube. He, he, he's a, he likes video games. He watches like YouTube clips on how to play Minecraft, which is, uh, I think, more or less an innocuous game. And I then discovered that I saw him just scrolling endlessly, which looked like he was on social media, and I, and I know he didn't have any apps. And it turns out that within YouTube, YouTube now has like YouTube shorts, which mm-hmm. I think is trying to compete with TikTok. Mm-hmm. And so he's essentially on social media now, and he's, he's watching all these kind of expert gamers give recommendations on Minecraft or how to solve a Rubik's Cube, um, stuff like that. So why would I want to deny him that? And, and it's the way he communicates with his friends. Um, but I worry about it. I definitely do. Uh-huh. I also asked um, my own parents. So I think like one argument against uh, Heights, like overall thesis is that every generation worries that the new thing for the subsequent generation is going to like mess them up in some way. And so I asked my parents, like, what did you worry would mess up our generation? Um, and they they listed a few things. They listed like, violent video games, um, Nesquik cereal, which is like sort of like, like chocolatey cereal. <laughs> I mean, that is bad for you, but like psychologically? Or yeah, it's just I, I threw it. out Fruit Loops and then that's where that's where I got Nesquik. Because I remember only having Fruit Loops when we went camping as kids. Like, you know, those like little tiny um, sure. cereal boxes. That was like the only time we would get those. Um, but the other thing that they mentioned that was really interesting to me was my mom was like, People were also worried about daycare, um, and they thought that sending your kids to daycare might mean that, um, first of all, you're more likely to get sick, um, like prescient concern, um, and then second of all, um, that that kids would be like less securely attached to their parents, um, which almost feels like the opposite concern that we have now, which is like, oh, we're smothering our kids and we're like not allowing them to be independent or something like that. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I, I resonate with that, that every generation worries about some new technology, even to the point of, uh, I, I remember reading that, uh, you know, intellectuals of the time were worried about books, you know, books ruining the minds of young people. And, you know, I've heard that too. Yeah, people telling, experts telling parents to deny uh, books, uh, you know, to the children, um, which of course is the exact opposite now. Hmm. Well, it's tough being a parent. Whatever you do is wrong. 
So do you want to talk about the association between adolescent well-being and digital technology use? Yeah, I think that's a really juicy area. And, you know, he didn't talk about it too much, uh, but he smuggled it in there, like in one of the paragraphs. And that seems to be a favorite hobby horse of him. Right. So actually, like one one reason I was a bit more skeptical of the Atlantic piece is he's uh, an author on work saying social media is bad in some basically entirely unrelated way, and that it's bad for teenagers. And then now he's writing this new article saying, well, also social media is bad in all these other ways. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it certainly could be the case that both those things are true, but that it's the same person just makes me think that like he's not oh, I don't know, an unbiased observer or anything. Um, so yeah, this uh, this paper that we wanted to talk about, this is uh, a paper called <laughs> The Association Between Adolescent Wellbeing and Digital Technology Use by Amy Orban and Andrew. How the hell do you pronounce this? I looked it up. Um, according to like YouTube, it's Probilski. Um, Probilski. Yeah, but I don't know if I can trust YouTube, but that's what it says. So... Uh, in this paper, uh, uh, Orban and Pro, what was it? Probilski. Probilski, thank you. Um, they take aim um, at uh, some research that's come from John Haidt, uh, Gene Twenge, but but not only them. Um, basically, they say, well, there's you know, a array of findings now purporting to show an association between higher social media use and worse mental health outcomes uh, for teenagers. Um, but those studies have some problems. So they typically are based on these large-scale data collections. Um, so you might have, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of respondents. Um, and there's quite a bit of flexibility in the items that you might use to test the hypothesis. So there's like an array of mental health relevant items that you might look at. There's an array of um, operationalizing uh, social media use or technology use that you might look at. And because these are data collections that are usually what people are doing are um, you know, secondary analyses, um, there's not a good way to credibly pre-register, right? Because these data are public and you, you don't know um, you can't know like what kind of combination of possibilities people may have looked at um, in order to perhaps pick out the one that has the most kind of dramatic result. Um, and so what they do is um, a multiverse analysis of the relationship between of kind of I would say screen time broadly. And uh, mental health indicators in teenagers, there's three big data sets that I think are commonly used um, by researchers looking at this. Um, and this, so they do the multiverse analysis uh, across these three data sets. And I, I, my impression of the takeaway is that there is a small association between uh, worse mental health outcomes and uh, using social media, but that that association is kind of in practical terms, trivial, even if it is statistically significant because these samples are so big. Is that, do you think that's a fair way of describing what they found? Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. I love this paper. This is a fantastic paper because it takes a really important question, uh, one that a lot of people care about, 
and kind of tested in every way imaginable, at least with uh, observational data, with uh, archival data, I should say. And they use this uh, uh, multiverse analysis, sometimes also called specification curves, and find that most of the associates are small, not significant, and sometimes they are, but significant, but not really, really meaningful. Um, now, that's only one way to skin this cat, right? Uh, there are also problems with these things. So, for example, a lot of the data that they have it concerns people's self-reported uh, screen time. Or if you want to get drilled down to social media, self-reported social media use. And then looked, of course, at well-being, which can only be uh, uh, measured via self-report. Uh, and even then, it's a really small association. They have a very cheeky, I think, finding in there that... Uh, you know, screen time is associated with poorer mental health to the same extent that eating potatoes <laughs> is associated with poorer mental health. So a really clever way of operationalizing effect size or kind of making effect sizes real. It's like, yeah, okay, it's something there, but do you worry about eating potatoes? Um, I doubt it. I also disagree. Yoel and I were talking about this earlier. Um, I feel confident that eating potatoes increases my well-being. Um, but yeah, I agree with you, Mickey, that this was a paper that like stood out to me in terms of making effect sizes interpretable, right? So, um, something I've thought about in, in several contexts recently is like, what should we make of small effects? When should we take them seriously? I think we've talked about that a bit on the podcast as well. Um, and this paper does a good job of basically like calibrating, um, the effect that, uh, the association between social media use and well-being against other kinds of effects. Um, and so, like you said, they found that it was comparable to the the effect of eating potatoes on well-being, um, sm much smaller than things like um, being bullied, um, much smaller and in the opposite direction than things like getting enough sleep, um, bigger than things like wearing glasses or or sorry, no, bigger than things like handedness or drinking milk, things like that you would think would have absolutely no effect on well-being. So that really like made me feel like, okay, I understand the size of this relationship in a meaningful way. Alexa, I think we have to address your el the elephant in the room here, which is your continued shilling for Big Potato, which <laughs> at this point <laughs> has just gotten to be uh, frankly disgusting. Let's be clear. It's only Canadian potatoes, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Listen, uh, as, as a kid, I, I did dislike potatoes, but I imagine in some places, like in North America, probably the modal way of consuming potatoes is fried. And I mean, that stuff is crack. French fries are oh my God. incredible. My favorite food. Yeah, absolutely. Especially you put a little gravy and cheese. Yes. Oh <laughs> Canadian yeah. potatoes yeah. only. I think we can all agree potatoes are delicious, and this result makes no sense at all. <laughs> <laughs> so should we discount the entire paper because that, that is clearly wrong? That's right. Throw it out. Maybe no, they just like bullshit. coded um, social media use in the opposite direction. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Just coded it backwards. Oops. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I also, I, I really liked this paper. Um, 
We should say uh, there's a there's a response um, from uh, Gene Twenge Height uh, and colleagues, and then a response to the response. And basically, you know, I I read both those papers, and I think Twenge et al. said, well, you know, if you focus on this selection of variables and this subgroup, specifically girls, the relationship looks stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the response says basically like, well, that's kind of unjustifiable cherry picking. Exactly. So the point I, in the first place. Yeah, a, a bit, right? And so they, you know, they were like, well, this set of variables is theoretically justifiable. But I mean, it, it's always a problem with these secondary analyses, right? Like that might be right, but I really want to see it pre-registered in that case. And I would want a new data collection. And, you know, maybe that can happen. Like there's enough attention to this that... Um, it might be that you could get somebody to actually fund this, right? Right. So I saw a paper, it was also a brilliant paper by this by Orban and Probinsky and, and, and colleagues. It was published in Nature Communications, uh, was it 2022? So very recent. Windows of, of Developmental Sensitivity to Social Media. And this is two years after this, this seminal paper. And you actually see some hints of what Twenge and Hyde are saying here. Um, so again, it's the same kind of data. It's observational, uh, archival, self-reported, screen time, et cetera. But they, now they break it down by sex. They break it down by age. Um, and they also have a panel, they have longitudinal data. So they can actually make some causal claims. And there, it, it looks like, in fact, there might be some periods for you know, adolescent girls, so I think uh, 12 or 13, adolescent boys, like around 14 or 15, where there might be an even causal effect of social media and well-being. Now, the size still is small, um, and it's not clear how meaningful it is. Um, but Twenge et al., you know, might have been right uh, in some ways about kind of breaking it down a bit more. And I was actually surprised to see this uh, this paper because they're kind of saying there might be something to it. Now, to, to make sure I get, get this right, this is still, they, they, ha, they have cross-sectional data and longitudinal data, and it looks like the, 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 the causal arrow goes in both directions. So those who have poor well-being are using social media more, especially in those ages, but it's still the case that it, it also works such that social media lower or is related to lower well-being in these uh, lagged cross-panel models. Um, so there's something there. Yeah. So I mean, I think that's it's cool to see these folks who are like in this paper taking the position that well, the evidence doesn't support the conclusion that there's this link. Now, I guess collecting better data uh, and revising what they believe. I, I mean, if anything, that makes me trust them more. Um, I guess, you know, you mentioned causality and that sort of gets into something that we haven't talked about, which is these data here that we've been talking about, they're all cross-sectional, right? So we're just arguing about the size of the association. If there is an association, it might be that the people who are unhappy spend more time on social media, mm-hmm. right? Because they're unhappy, not, not vice versa. Mm-hmm. And even using these kind of cross-lag designs, I mean, I... Uh, can you really conclusively rule out that there's some predisposing factor um, at time A that uh, causes people to use more social media then and then also causes them to do worse at time B? Like, I don't know how you can really control for that conclusively, right? 
Yeah, in fact, there are modern critiques of this technique for that very reason. I think people have been too quick to assume that it gives you these causal answers, uh, but they're still confounding possible. And, you know, causalities were literally hard uh, outside the confines of an experiment. Even with experiments, uh, it's hard. Um, but I think you're right. There's another commentary that I saw uh, written actually by an old postdoc in the lab, Marie Good, Alexa, who I think you overlapped with a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and their reanalysis of, of data that Twangy uh, et al. ran, they find that there's a far greater association with you know, depressed kids going on social media than vice versa. Yeah. One thing that I liked about the Orban and Probilski paper is um, that they they document, I guess, like reasons to reasons why there might be some sort of like inconsistency about the association between social media use and well-being in the literature, um, which I also sort of read as like reasons to be skeptical of like reported associations, which are, you know, the I think the media and even um, authors of scientific papers typically sort of like seize on the, the, the correlations that are like most eye-catching, you know, so uh, a negative correlation between um, using social media and well-being. Um, but they note like sort of systemic problems with the literature on these kinds of questions. One is that um, these sort of like very broad, I would say like particularly questions related to things like well-being and stuff like that, where you're using existing data sets. First of all, um, there's often a lot of uh, flexibility in the sort of like justifiable analyses that you can do. Um, And one example that like drove that home for me was within this paper, they talked about one of the data sets that you could use to, to look at social media and well-being, the millennium cohort study. And they said that this study has over 60 million defensible specifications, right? So in other words, 60 million, um, just like reasonable ways that you could analyze the data um, so there's a ton of flexibility there. And then there's these like very large sample sizes, which mean that most observed effects end up being significant in that at the um, P equals 0.05 level. Um, but then there's also the fact that these are often cross-sectional data sets that, um, that make it difficult to make causal claims, um, much more difficult than like the kinds of longitudinal data sets that you guys are talking about. Um, so, this is true of this research question, making it very difficult to answer. Um, but also, I would argue um, there are other research questions that that fall into this um, into this similar category, right? So things where it's like challenging to do experiments, um, and where people are often relying on large existing data sets and things like that. Um, so yeah, one of the things that this paper drove home for me was just yeah, how difficult it is to come to a conclusive answer about the question that we have, which is what is the like causal relationship between these two things? Yeah, I think that's totally right. And it, it would be nice if we could give people a definitive answer, right? Like we figured it out, right? Um, and it's just not going to happen. And it's always going to be this sort of unsatisfying, well, maybe, you know, under some circumstances, you might see an effect in this direction, but we're not really sure it's causal. Right. So there are some experiments out now, uh, some randomized control trials, 
some of them are insane. I mean, there's this one by Alcott et al. in 2020, uh, a really cool paper uh, published in American Economic Review, where they paid people oodles of money to quit Facebook for a month. So to actually deactivate their accounts. And apparently if you deactivate it for, I think, 30 days, you have like 31 days or something like this where you deactivate it and then it takes about a month for Facebook to permanently delete it. So you can deactivate it and still reactivate it after 30 days. So, and they paid people money for this, lots of it. Um, And they did in fact find that it led to some positive effects. So quitting Facebook led to uh, well, first of all, reduced online activity, which you'd expect, um, but also more offline activity, including watching television. Uh, so uh, not very offline, uh, but it reduced polarization uh, and it increased subjective well-being, um, which I think is pretty good evidence uh, that there is a causal effect there. Um, now, it also, by the way, while it decreased polarization, it did actually also decrease factual knowledge about politics, right? Which also makes sense. You're reading it less. Yeah. I mean, that's my dilemma about not being on Twitter is that, well, I don't have a a strong pull to be on Twitter in the first place. Um, But one thing that deters me is, um, yeah, these kinds of like, sort of like superficial hostilities that seem to happen on Twitter. Um, But one thing that I miss out on by not being on Twitter, um, especially like academic Twitter, is that like, I don't know what's going on. You know, I don't know what people are talking about. Um, And that is like a sacrifice, uh, which I, um, yeah, which I compensate for by doing this podcast with Yoel, who then informs me what's happening on Twitter. (laughs) For the most part, they're talking about how Mickey Inslecht is terrible. <laughs> I already knew I could, that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you don't need to be on Twitter for knowledge. So uh, going back to that Twitter study that I was I keep on mentioning by my student, Victoria, she also found that uh, there's a positive effect of being on Twitter, and that's a sense of community, a sense of belonging. So every time you log on Twitter, you have a greater sense of being connected to, to other people. So that, that's clearly a, a positive effect that you miss out on by not being on. Yeah. Okay. So what, what's, our, what's our take? Mickey, you're not going to ban your kids from social media, I guess. Yeah. You're making a face like you maybe want to ban them from social media. <laughs> this is actually a relevant question. My son just asked me if he could get uh, Snapchat. And so, Alexa, I, I found out that the, that the youths, in fact, do use it as social media. So our, our undergrads use it, I guess, there's some feature where there's a news feed. Yeah. But this appears after 24 hours, like each post or something like this. I think that's right. It's like sort of like stories on Instagram. Maybe they're also called stories. Um, but yeah, they, they get deleted after a short amount of time. Yeah. So he asked, and I'm really struggling with what to do. I mean, probably I'll say yes. It's just an eventuality before it's, he goes on all of them. And then go set down some uh, YouTube rabbit hole, right, Rial? So this makes me feel so old because I've only ever used Snapchat for sexting, and <laughs> apparently, <laughs> apparently kids use it for just regular stuff. I had no idea. 
I've never received uh, any of those uh, Snapchats. Anyway. <laughs> you know, I, maybe I had your address wrong or something. Some other <laughs> making. <laughs> Very surprised. Yeah. So, like I said, I feel like a hypocrite because I think I mostly think there's a moral panic about social media. Just like you know, Alexa, you were mentioning what were our parents worried about. Uh, I think it was my parents probably worried about TV. Mm-hmm. Actually, I shouldn't say they worried at all because I watched like eight hours a day of TV. I mean, it was Same. ridiculous. Yeah. And despite what Yoel just said, I think I turned out all right. Um, so maybe I'm worried about nothing on uh, social media. Just another screen they're on and allows them to connect. Yeah, maybe allows them to get angry and polarize a little bit too. Mickey, what's the... Um, does that mean that you don't like truly believe the research or... Is it like that you're just like really erring on the side of caution? Like, I feel like this is um, like a challenging, uh, a challenging area for parents because like on the one hand, you're like looking at the research, you're like, okay, um, probably this isn't that bad. But then maybe you're hearing from other people like it is really bad. And like, if it turns out that it truly is bad, like you're going to be a horrible person. You're going to. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I think because my my personal intuitions are in line with 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 hate heights. Right. I, I swear to you, my head, I'm always saying hate. The whole well. episode, you got it right, and I could see you were like the gears were turning to not get it wrong. <laughs> Second and beer, then, dude. you know, you drank enough beer, exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I share that same intuition. I mean, I'm off Twitter because I I don't like it. I mean. I do like it, but I find it toxic. And I see my son on it, and I feel he has an unhealthy relationship with it. Not much with my daughter. Um, he's on it all the time. He acts like an addict. It's hard for him to, to break free. Uh, but then I read the research. I was like, yeah, maybe not so bad. So I just feel ambivalent. And whenever I speak to other parents about this, and I talk about the research, they all like roll their eyes at me. They're all like, you're just a, you know, a pointy-headed academic and you don't know what you're talking about. Like, clearly, the research is wrong because how can you deny the evidence that's in front, in front of your eyes? So I feel strange. I mean, I think it's reasonable to say, like, to some extent, you want to be risk-averse. Um, and also, you know, the mean hides a lot of variability. So it may have a really bad effect on some kids. I don't, I mean... I just like, this is one of the blessings of not being a parent, I guess, is you don't have to wrestle with these sorts of issues. But I, I think your intuition is right that sooner or later he's going to be on it anyway, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, it, it is It is strange. I mean, again, when I'm rationally just thinking about it, I'm like, uh, just have fun, kid, uh, and let's go play basketball later. <laughs> that sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anything else we want to get in there before we wrap up? Maybe just say thank you to you two for uh, having me on again. I I felt really rusty, as I kind of mentioned uh, in the break. Uh, but it was nice to be on. And I'm so thrilled with w- what you two are doing. And I, I, I still am a regular listener. And uh, yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, it was good to have you. Yeah, it was great to have you back. And let's do it again soon. Definitely. <laughs>